0: What's up, sober family? Welcome to I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast for newly sober people learning to love ourselves instead of booze.
1: Really doing some meditations where you put your hand on your heart. That just alone, like right when I just did this now, my whole body just went, just put your hand on your heart and tell yourself, I am enough. I did enough. I am good enough. Just, and and really know that you are inherently enough. We don't talk about that enough. And so let go of the shoulds, the worry, the shame, the guilt, you know, and step into that you already have all the answers within you.
0: Today, my guest is Meg Geisweit, author of Intoxicating Lies, an exploration of her journey out of being trapped in what she called the wine cycle of hell. By the end of this episode, we're all gonna be a lot better equipped to drink less or stop drinking from the hard-earned wisdom that Meg's going to bestow on us today, I'm your host Dana Kroll. I'm a former Army chaplain who developed a toxic relationship with alcohol after leaving the military. I stayed on a roller coaster of rock bottoms, recoveries, and relapses until finally, in the winter of 2022, I found my way out of the cycle by connecting with people like you. After kissing alcohol goodbye, my goal is to never go back. But I can't do it alone, so let's break up with booze together. With me in the studio, as always, are Al K. Hallfree, my spirit animal for sobriety, and Spruce, my PTSD service dog. Napping as always, he is. And before we get rolling, I just want to quickly say that if you're new to sobriety and looking for a group of people to be your sober community, please come and join the I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye Sober Family Facebook group. The link is in the show notes, or you can search Facebook groups for I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye and... A couple of our I kissed alcohol goodbye premium subscribers are also in the studio with uh, Meg and me today. So hopefully one one of them from Chicago and one from Australia zooming in from the future. So yeah, we will see if they have questions for Meg throughout the conversation. But we're just going to get rolling with Meg, and I would love to hear about that wine cycle of hell, Megan. And my my second that was my favorite line. My second favorite line was um, you said your cravings for wine heckled you like a cackling witch i just love that image so like tell me about your relationship with wine and just you know what's brought you to writing the book and everything thank you for being here
1: oh thank you so much for having me i'm really honored to be with you guys tonight and um anybody chime in at any time with any questions we'll keep it really informal but i was really stuck in gray area drinking which is um a new term that's been out in the medical literature for over a decade. But the reason why I wrote the book is um, I really wanted to talk more about that space on the alcohol use disorder spectrum. And I was trapped not only in gray area drinking, but the mommy wine culture in particular. And I really fell into the five most intoxicating lies that I go over in my book. Um, I believed them. I gulped them down unknowingly and really was stuck in this maddening detox to retox loop on a daily basis. Um, So where my story really started is, and I think for many of us, if we go way back into our childhood, we can see there are incidents and events that we've been to where subliminally we're getting these messages about these pro-drinking messages about alcohol and my parents no fault of their own um, ran in a country club scene where they were either going to a cocktail party or we were having a cocktail party at our house and my mom would dress me up in my best Jessica McClintock dress and I would hand out a d'oeuvres to the to the guest and I learned very young about people pleasing talking to adults as a young child but watching everybody have fun and connecting with lots of alcohol Um, so much so that my dad was like, if we hadn't spent so much money on alcohol, you probably wouldn't have had student loans. (laughs) So there was quite a bit of uh, (laughs) outpouring going into the cocktail parties. Um, And what happened was in the fifth grade, my parents took me to a, a local, very well renowned psychologist in town who tested my IQ. And Um, this is all kind of at the beginning of the book. And it talks about the lies and stories that we tell ourselves about these things that happened to us when we were younger. And after she tallied up my score, in so many words, she basically said to me, it's a good thing that you can draw because your score was not very high and you're not going to amount to much. Mm -hmm. And so I kept that secret you know, to myself because she was so well-regarded within the community. She's the expert. I'm this little fifth grade girl that really didn't think I would amount to much. And we moved quite a bit um, with my dad's job. And so the need to fit in was of utmost importance to me. And I was constantly having to make new friends and try to fit in. And my very first drink was in eighth grade where all of the popular girls at my new school um, came over for a slumber party and they asked if they could raid my parents' liquor cabinet. Well, I wanted to fit in, so I said, of course, and we did shots of peach schnapps, which, you know, I had my very first hangover the next day. And really going through college and, uh, I'm sorry, into high school and college, the drinking was just a social whenever I could, you know, Socially, do it. um, Was I was I? My parents were very strict in high school, so I wasn't allowed to go to a lot of parties. But um, in college, I unfortunately uh, was sexually assaulted my freshman year um, because I had been drinking at a party. And I'm not going to go into the details here. It's all in the book. Um, However, that really is a big, it was a trauma that happened to me and it catapulted me into an over-functioning coping mechanism. So I graduated cum laude. I had to prove that I was something. I was really starting to tell myself the lie and story that not only would I not amount to much, but that I wasn't good enough. Um, and I needed to be in control of everything because I had no control over my body. Um, And unfortunately, after college, I got into a second situation again, heavy drinking um, with with a guy after college and another assault. So I was really catapulted into this overachieving need to control type of mindset to kind of cope with what happened to me. Um, and I didn't even really know it at the time. So I got into sales and I really fell into that whole hustle culture that I am what I what I produce. I'm only as good as my last rankings and sales and um, and started winning all kinds of awards and still was drinking just kind of like socially on the weekends and. Um, But then got into the beauty culture where I got into sales and aesthetics and then fell into all the lies of not only did I have to win all the awards and over function and high achieve, but I needed to look perfect while I was doing it. So um, then I met my husband and we um, got married. We had two kids and I really, really fell into the lies of the mommy wine culture that it would help be the solution to my parenting woes. And, um, I was still kind of just drinking socially with my friends, but again, it was so normalized to be drinking play dates and, you know, sporting events and just all types of kids activities. And, um, what happened was I had three back-to-back life events that happened two weeks apart. And it really shifted my occasional drinking, social drinking to this medicinal nightly drinking where it was the crutch that had kind of been through my side all those years. But now I was using it on a nightly basis um, because I felt and I fell into the first lie that's in my book, which I hear most from most often from the women in my group, Um, I'm in Sober cis, that community, is uh, that I deserve it and that I earned it. So I was so disconnected from myself, so concerned about taking care of everybody else's needs before my own, I couldn't even tell you what my needs were. You know, my therapist asked me, what's your needs? And I was like, I don't know, (laughs) no clue. Just checking off, taking care of everybody at work, everybody at home. And, um, she said, do you feel dutiful yet dead? And I said, that's exactly how I feel. Um, and so I, um, worked up the courage to, um, tell another therapist, this this had a couple different therapists, but, um, I was doing a lot of talk therapy for my traumas and I'll get into what, what other kinds of therapies, modalities I went into to heal some of this trauma I went through, but, um so I finally worked worked up the courage to tell her that I thought I had a drinking problem. I was starting to feel like I was in that constant groundhog's day. I felt very alone and isolated in my in what appeared to be normal drinking. Every time I would ask somebody they're like, "I don't think you're addicted. You drink just like me. I think it, you know, your drinking is normal." So when I tell her this, she tells me and I have this in the book as well. Um that she thinks that I'm thinking about it too much. And so her ill advice kept my gray area drinking going for two more years. And um, I finally got to a place where even though every external thing was telling me it was okay and normal, and I had no external consequences, really kind of no rock bottom to say, other than if you want to say hit a rock bottom, it was when... I no longer wanted my kids to do sports in the evenings so that I could come home to my rewarding glass of wine. And that scared me because I was no longer in control. It was in control of me. And um, so I listened to that small voice, which I call the inner knowing in my book, and listened to her who was pleading with me to do something about my toxic relationship with alcohol. And that's when I found sober sis. And when she talked about the detox to retox loop in her video, I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what is happening to me. And I thought I was alone. So I joined her 21 day reset thinking, oh, I just need to get a few tools under my belt to rein in my drinking. And I'll go back to being a so-called normal drinker, whatever that is. And um, when I got into the group, there were hundreds of women in there and I'm thinking, why are there so many women in here? You know, what, what is going on? And this was November of 2019, November 1st of 2019. And really after doing her 21 day reset, I became more and more curious about the science behind alcohol, because I'm in pharmaceutical sales. So I love to sell on science. And I was reading Annie Grace's This Naked Mind. And I was like, why aren't we warned that it's a carcinogenic? Why aren't we told it's a depressant? Why aren't we, you know, talking about it, increasing our anxiety? Instead, we're told it's a solution. And I just started asking myself more and more questions. And I was journaling all throughout this journey. And, um, and so at a hundred days, um, I, I took Jen's second course, which is an alcohol free lifestyle program, which was 90 days. I wanted to give myself a hundred days. My husband's like, is this forever? And I'm, I was like, you know, all along, I wasn't really sure how long I was going to do it. I was truly sober curious and I had never felt better. My eczema had cleared up. I had never been sleeping better like the color in the day was coming back. I was always living in a slight, you know, shade of gray day in and day out. My conversations at work, I was having, you know, clear conversations uh, with my colleagues. My relationship with my kids was getting better. Everything was improving. And I was like, this, I mean, I've I've just got to let, you know, give this some more time. And, um, so after 100 days, things really started to shift in my brain. And the reason why I mentioned that is, you know, we we live in an in, the other lie we fall into is that we live in an instant gratification society. We want to be fixed in 30 days. You know, we want to lose weight in 30 days or whatever it is we want to be. At, and, and it, you know, I'm grateful there are those programs because I wasn't sure that I wanted to break up with alcohol. But when it comes to an alcohol-free journey, it really takes a lot longer than just 30 days. I mean, dry January is great, right? I think it's great that people are exploring the relationship. But the reality is, this is, this is these lies and stories that we have told ourselves and the beliefs that have been conditioned and ingrained in us about alcohol have happened over decades. And it's going to take more than usually 30 days to unlearn and rewire your brain. Um, and so I, I really take the reader through um, my journey and the lies that I believed about alcohol.
0: It's thank you for sharing uh, your story. And one of the things that uh, you talk about um, in a, a different interview that you did with uh, my friend Matt on his on his show, you talked a lot about um, the this inner knowing and I would love to hear, about that too, because here you are, you know, having had these couple of experiences with professionals, right? Mm -hmm. One as a little girl, one as a, as um, you know, an adult woman. And so like, how did you learn to listen to that inner knowing that finally was saying like, Hey, this isn't right. And I really need to, you know, I'd love to hear more about that part of it.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. So at the end of my book, um, I talk about my life coach. Her name is Carrie Rose. And she, the the book ends with her. And I took a course um, that she offered called Shift Into Alignment, was a which is learning about our chakras and energy flowing through us. But she was one of the best life coaches. I'm such a big proponent, as you can tell, of therapists, life coaches. I mean, if we can just normalize therapy, I think we'd all be in better. A better world. Yeah. Um, but she really helped me slow down and get out of that grind hustle culture that she taught me. And I talk about it in the book that every time the perfectionist the overachiever and the people pleaser would pop up that that is actually a trauma response to what happened to me. They were there to protect me and help me through those times. And so it's not that, I don't know if you've ever heard of internal family systems, which is another type of therapy, but there's a book called No Bad Parts by Dick Schwartz. And I, I envision like these little army people, the people pleaser, the chronic achiever, <laughs> um, you know, they all show up like ready, ready for battle. They're all in their armor. And I just tap them on their head and say, thank you for your service. You helped me through some really tough times in my life, but I don't need your service anymore. And I kind of send them on their merry way. And it's so it's not looking at these parts of ourselves with shame and guilt and judgment, but rather from a place of self-compassion and knowing you were doing the best that you could at that time. And one of the examples I use in the book is it's, I think nature is one of our greatest teachers, which is, you know, a snake sheds her skin 12 times a year And when we look at these old versions of ourselves that were constricted by society and family and big alcohol and all these things, we need to, to look at those old parts of ourselves or those, that old shape of our old skin that we're shedding and saying, you know, it wasn't my fault. It is my responsibility to do something, but to not have the shame and guilt around it that we're, we're kind of told to have, right? Like there's a stigma around it. And that makes me angry because we've been duped and it's not our fault, but you know, we're not the problem. Alcohol is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, thank you. Uh, I wanted to pause to give a chance for, you know, a couple of, for my, my friends that are here with me to ask any questions if they have them. And if you don't yet, and you don't have to ask anything at all, but I wanted to pause in case you do El- Elmer, what's up, man.
2: Yeah. Well, this is, thank you for allowing me to join the conversation here and certainly great, uh, area drinking is something that I relate to. I started by listening to any Grace's podcast and that kind of got me on a journey to, uh, different tools. Um, you know one thing that I, I, I sort of struggle with now being a little over a year out and living in an alcohol free life and loving my alcohol free life is that when when people when i tell people that i haven't spoken to in a while that i that i don't drink alcohol anymore that i live alcohol free they're like what they start i start getting questions like why you've never you're not an alcoholic oh, you, you know, what, what, what's so much fun? What, like, what's, so I start getting all these questions all all of a sudden. And of course, I start preaching, you know, and I start telling them all the great things and how, you know, I'm exercising and I'm sleeping better. And, you know, but I find myself just like blurting out so many things at once that I could tell that maybe instead of helping, I'm kind of, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, it's not landing well. So well, here's the question. What what do you do now that you're three years plus living alcohol free? Like, do you hone in on a a specific message? Because it's people that I want to give a message to, but I want to give it in a concise way where they won't be turned off by me, you know, just blabbering, you know, about everything. So...
1: Well, first of all, have some compassion for yourself because there's so many gifts and beauty to an alcohol-free life that we want to share it with everybody. We want to tell them all the good things. So, you know, I I totally get where you're coming from because I felt like that too. And I really have landed on this, just a very simple response of, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, which nobody's going to argue with you. Everybody's had a hangover at some point. And I love my life more Without alcohol, and I love myself more without alcohol. Now I leave it at that. If they want to ask me more questions, like "What do you mean by that?" or "Tell me more," then that's where you can go in and talk about all of the gifts and beauty that we're given in an alcohol-free journey. But I, tr- I do, I, I think that you know, and I don't have any judgment for anybody who chooses to drink. It's free will, right? If you want to go smoke cigarettes, go smoke cigarettes. That's your free will and choice to do so. I don't personally understand it anymore now that I know the truth, but I think people think that when we share these things that we're coming at them at it with judgment or like we're better than them. And it's not, it's not that it's that we're so excited and we want them to feel the way we feel. And I have so much compassion now for people who are trapped in gray area drinking or just anywhere on that spectrum, quite frankly, because I I lived there for many years too, and I had the blinders up and I couldn't see, you know, and just know by you showing up to these events, happy and having fun and enjoying, you know, yourself, you are planting a seed just by being you, that there is an alternative way to live that is joyful more clear, you know, that you're gonna, you're probably the one that's having the more deep, meaningful conversations because the people are drinking or having more surface conversations. So, you know, I can't tell you how many people in the past, <clears throat> excuse me, three years didn't really want to hear what I had to say, showed up at my book signing with tears in their eyes, I need this book now, or three years later, my biggest drinking pal coming to me and ordering a non-alcoholic drink with me at the restaurant. You never know when you are being and planting a seed for somebody at the table at the party and your family, just stay true to you and keep it. Like you said, just keep it simple, but have a lot of compassion for yourself because there is so many great things to talk about. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you Elmer, for a great question. And I have a follow-up question to that actually because Meg you um you share in the book a story of uh there there are some great stories in there including a covid nightmare with in Aruba with your daughter's story but after that one I think it, it comes a story of you going um to see family uh that you hadn't seen in a couple of years and when you show up you know your dad's like hey I got a couple of cases of wine for you guys for your Airbnb And um, you're like, "Uh, dad, remember, I don't drink. He's like, oh, okay. But then my question's not so much about that. You can talk about the family dynamic if you want in conjunction with Elmer's question. But my question has to do with... um, you you talk in that chapter about how you sort of lapse back into the perfectionist or the 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 planner and the person who cuz you know perfectionistic people pleasing like overachiever is me 100% so so much of what you talk about is like right up my alley but i i was fascinated by this part of the book where you talk about um how being out of your element a little bit or back into old territory, Mm -hmm. how you kind of lapse back into old ways of thinking. Can you talk about that and how you uh, don't lapse back into that? Or or what do you do? Again, like Elmer said, at the three-year mark, it's not like things Mm -hmm. are just easy all the time. How do you, you, not just with the alcohol, but how do you um, not lapse back into the other uh, habits that uh, you had gotten into throughout uh, your adult life?
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing up that story. So um, I am the caretaker in the family. I'm the oldest. I'm the planner. I'm kind of the cruise director. Um, I'm a type A, Enneagram 1, you know, close closely followed by an Enneagram 2. But um, in that story, I found myself, which is, again, why I talk about the snake shedding your skin. You have to keep letting go over and over again. It's like young Pablo, the author of um, inward, he talks about and clarity, I think um, he has two books, but it's the deeper the pain or the deeper those coping skills that you mentioned, Dana, are going to keep popping up and it's catching them more and not viewing them with judgment or guilt or shame and releasing them more. And so when that happened to me, I've, I found myself in my old roles, right? We play roles within our families, within work, you know, and people expect us to show up a certain way. And to Elmer, your point, your friends have known you a certain way for years, and now you're showing up differently, right? And they're like, what's going on? And we have to have compassion for them too, because they're trying to learn your new ways. And, um, you know, when I was trying in the story where I was planning for everybody and doing all these things, I was actually injured and I, I couldn't even go on these, these things I was planning for my family. And I found myself in that same space of being bitter and regretful. And like, I don't want this role anymore. What I used to do after I did all those things and took care of everybody is I would drink that bitterness. I would drown it all out in wine. I would be like, Oh, you know here i am doing everything for everybody again you know and i would i would just numb out that feeling now we are required to go inward right and sit with those feelings but it's it's catching those little army people that keep showing up thanking them for their service and sending them on their merry way you know over and over again i can't tell you this book has been the most cathartic journey in that I had to let go of people, told me to take entire chapters out. No one would buy my book. You know, I had to let go of so many people pleasing type of things that happened in this book publishing journey. Um, and letting go of all of the societal, like the rankings and how many books you've sold and how many podcasts you've done and all these things. What I do now is I say, I'm going to take these three steps today. And mostly I will tell you they're baby steps. Every time I take I'm scared to death, I do something new. I step outside of my comfort zone and I take the next baby step of doing the next right thing towards that goal. And you're gonna, and in, in your journey, you look back like you both are are celebrating a year, and it, you see all of that growth, and that all those baby steps you took in that journey are actually huge leaps in time. And so when we do these little small baby steps, what we need to do after that is rest our heads on our pillows at night and saying, and say, and that is enough. I am good enough because we are inherently enough, but we are told by society. We are, we are lied to that. We need to do more, hustle more, grind more, you know, and then drown it all out. If you're stressed out and alcohol, that is the message and the, the stories that were told by society. We are not told that we have this inner knowing. We all have this bright light within us that Carrie helped me find and that it's within every one of us. And you guys know that as you go inward and you go through these traumas and you go through these lies and these stories that you've told yourself that they really aren't true and we can go back in time. Yes, those incidents did happen. I'm not saying they didn't happen, but I did somatic therapy where. All the talk therapy in the world was not helping my sexual assaults. They were in my body. Dana, I'm sure you can attest to this. And so I had to, we had to go back into my body, which I take you through in the book and get that emotions that were stored in my body out of my body. I think a lot of people who fall into different spaces on the alcohol use spectrum have unresolved trauma that, you know, when we remove it, we have to go back and see. You know, why we do the things we did, or what was driving us to drink in the first place.
0: Yeah, and along that line, to my follow up to that question would be, talk to me about your inner child, the inner child work that you've done and that you probably still do. Um, that's something that I've been learning about and realizing that I I really need to get back to that little boy that you know I was and that I still am in so many ways. Can you talk to me about how? how that's played into your, um, into your alcohol-free life as well.
1: Yeah. So that, that inner child, that, that inner knowing it it exists within us. It has all the answers. It's always guiding us back to the truth. It's just been covered in layers and layers of, of conditioning. Um, and so, um, when we think back to when we were a child, what did you love to do? I loved to ride my bike. I remember my pigtails flying in the wind and you know, riding all around the neighborhood. I used to play in creeks. I loved nature. I used to paint. Go back to when you were a child and what brought you joy. And even though we're super super busy, I take a 2-hour painting class every Monday night and it's like the the to-do list just melts away and I get immersed in that color and that little girl in me comes alive and is like oh my God, pure joy, pure fun. And I go back home a better mom, a better wife, because I have fulfilled something that, that I used to love to do a long time ago. We forget that, that part of us, that, that alcohol kind of corrodes and that you lose that connection to yourself of who you truly are and what you truly love to do. Now I've worked with um, Amanda Kuda, who's also in the sobriety space. And when I was starting, I'd finished writing the book. I was, I'd finished publishing, getting like going through the whole publishing part. And now it was time to launch it. And that was a whole nother ball of wax. And she, I felt very stuck. Whenever I feel stuck in something, I know it's time for a therapist or a life coach and so she she said to me you know meg you're hiding behind the computer on instagram it's just posts of words it's but it's not i don't see your face why am i not seeing you and i said i had a public speaking incident that happened to me in college and one in my first job that was like humiliating So we went back and did that inner child work. We went back to those situations. We went into those embarrassing moments and we actually did the inner child healing work where the past me and the future me surrounded myself with love and healing and saying it was going to be okay. And that what, you know, that I I could do this. And we went through this whole exercise. Thank God, because not only did I need to come back out on more on social media, but many of the first things I did were lives. And so they were just stories that I was telling myself that I couldn't do this and it wasn't true, but I needed the help of a, you know, of a life coach to go back and do that inner child work. So I'm glad you brought that up because the inner child work is really profound in moving you when you feel stuck.
0: Yeah. Thank you um, for that. My next to last question is you also have talked about how you, you hate the word should. Yeah. And so could you tell me again, how you as the, you know, the driven perfectionistic people pleasing, you know, high achiever um, always should be doing something else. Right. And so how do you, how do you work with, how do you, how do you, live in a life without should, how do you not should all over yourself, I guess is what I'm asking.
1: (laughs) Yeah. We live in a society that says you should do this. You shouldn't do that, you know? And so um, for example, someone had told me you should do a bonus feature. I want to, I want to create a writing community down the road. Well, you should do this now as something to to pre-order your book. Well, that overwhelmed me. That it was too much on my plate. I mean, I have a full-time job, you know, I'm a mother of two and it felt like a big should. And this is where you go into your body. And is your body like, let's do this. This is a hell yes. Or is your body like, oh my God, I feel like I can't breathe. No, 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 no. That is where, you know, when we don't have alcohol numbing that that connection to our bodies, we can lean into those nudges of yes, hell yes, or hell no. And shoulds usually (laughs) don't come from a place of joy and creativity and inspiration. So I know this may sound crazy, but like, I don't have all of my Instagram posts booked out. Like I probably should, right. Right. It would be easier I do it from a place of inspiration. What is, I, I kind of get these downloads and when they come in, I know they are the messages that need to go out. And so I come from a place of inspiration. What's speaking to me, what actually fills me up, you know, with, with meaning and soul fulfilling inspiration versus I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Should, you know, mm-mm. it kills the joy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I'm the uh, the curse of the shoulds. I <laughs> it's such a great such a great helpful answer. Um, I are there any other questions from my friends that are here? Because if not, I will ask my final question. Oh yeah, yep. tell, go for well,
1: it. Um, I've been trying to think about how to word this question, so apologies if it's a bit rambled. But and um, I'm I don't know actually how many days I am now. I've over 210 maybe 220 maybe more I'm not sure i stopped counting and um, and stress so you sound like a very very busy lady and um, you know I've I've got a partner I work full-time um, recently got on a promotion and the stress in my life has just just gone up like three between three to five levels and obviously the wine witch is no more but I'm really I meditate, I journal, I do gratitudes, but I'm just getting to the point where I'm really I'm back to waking up to 3 a.m. every night and all I'm thinking about is work. Mm-hmm. Um any any tips? Well, um, it sounds like you're doing a lot of the right things, which is the journaling and getting it out maybe at 2 a.m., you know, or 3 a.m., whatever is on your mind, being like, I'm gonna just vomit on this page and go back to bed because there is nothing that you really can do. At that hour, Um, I'm a big fan of insight timer, which has thousands of guided meditations. And so, you know, when I can't sleep because the monkey mind is going 300 miles an hour swinging from branch to branch, I will turn on a guided meditation to stop that, you know, it's, again, not viewing it with judgment, like it's, it's okay, right? It's helped you be very successful, But letting go of some of these, you know, um, things that really we can't do anything about at two and three o'clock in the morning. The other thing, because I'm so busy, um, it goes back to finding joy in your day. So if you start, if you're starting to feel dutiful yet dead, that's not good, right? So when you go for a walk, one of the things I recommend in my book, it's called find the beauty in the day, find on your walk. So you're getting your exercise, a sun a sunset a flower a leaf i collect heart shaped rocks i find them all the time but look for something it could be a bird it can be anything that brings you joy that lets you just feel some gratitude for that day that you can bring in while you're doing something else but when you savor and on that gratitude, it shifts things in your brain to really kind of feeling like, and you're in a place of joy versus constantly doing and trying to check off all of the lists. you, you know, taking care of your nervous system is paramount with the meditation and the breath work. You know, if you have to take a five minute break to just go do some deep breaths between meetings to kind of bring back your nervous system. It's all about regulating that nervous system. Um, But I, I I understand and just know that every day the the meditation I do is like, I've done enough. You are enough, you know, like you kind of have to keep hearing that because it will, it's like the drink, the craving brain is like, I could do more. I could do more. I could, you know, and guess what? It's never enough, is it? it just never is. So we have to go back to this place of being like, I did these, I set these three goals for myself today. I did them. And that is enough. Tomorrow, I will do three more. Does that help? It does. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, good.
2: Can I say something really quick? Like it'll take thirty seconds.
1: Yeah.
2: I was just gonna. I was just gonna make a comment. Something I read. My wife. I'm. A, I worry about everything. So sometimes worrying too much keeps you up at night. And my wife makes fun of me, and she says that I'm searching for things to worry about. But I read something. It was a post from the Minimalists a couple of days ago that said. Worrying is like praying for something bad to happen. Mm-hmm. That really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. So whenever I find myself worrying, I think about that and I say, stop that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got to shut, shut that off.
1: So it's such a good point because worrying is living in the future and we, we need to live in the present, in the now. And sometimes it's just coming back to our breath that brings us back to the now, you know, and it it's sometimes just these simple things, but worrying is not gonna solve really anything, you know. Um, but that that's a great quote. I love that.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Thank you, Albert. That's pretty good stuff. Um, I wanna ask Meg as my last question. So this is the um uh, and thank you to Elmer and Tal both for being here and for asking questions and being part of the conversation. This is one of my favorite episodes ever. Um, this is so cool. And um, I wanted to ask you, Meg, this is the show for newly sober people uh, like Elmer, Tal, and I and you know others who are listening uh, who are learning to love ourselves instead of booze. And so what do you do? to show love to yourself what are some things that and you you've kind of touched on some of them but what would you say is something that that would be helpful for people who are in their first year uh, of sobriety to hear about self love
1: yeah i think you know um really doing some meditations where you put your hand on your heart that just alone like right when i just did this now my whole body just went just put your hand on your heart and tell yourself I am enough. I did enough. I am good enough. Just, and, and really know that you are inherently enough. We don't talk about that enough. And so let go of the shoulds, the worry, the shame, the guilt, you know, and step into that. You already have all the answers within you When we slow down and we listen and we journal, I journal every day, you know, I just sit in that space and I imagine this bright, this is why this photo is behind me, I don't know if you can see it, but this bright light coming down into me and filling me up, which is, you know, whatever you believe in, God, the divine, but that bright light comes down into us and it, and our purpose, I believe in this world is to then just shine that light out to everybody else. So we can only do that when we love ourselves and know that we are an expression of that bright light and let it go in and light up the little, little girl or boy, the inner knowing within you.
0: What a beautiful way to close the episode. Like I... There there it is. I, I don't think that needs any commentary. Like Meg, thank you so much for being oh, here with us. Thank you, everyone, for listening and joining us on this episode of I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. Until next time, Al Spruce, Elmer, Tal, Meg, and I send you all of our best. And we, can, we send you our sober love and we say goodbye, alcohol, and mwah. Mwah. Hello life. Yes. Much love to you all and peace. Thanks for joining us on our kiss alcohol. Goodbye. We'll see you next time.